This is Family Law Matters, a podcast series that introduces you to mental health and legal professionals in the area of family law. We'll be talking to experts who guide moms, dads, and children along transitions of separation and divorce. My name is Janine Crofton, the principal at Resolveology, Inc. I'm a family law mediator in Alberta and a psychologist in Alberta and Ontario. My hope is to provide information and a bit of optimism to listeners who are in the midst of restructuring their families. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that information heard on this podcast is not to be construed as psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a professional concerning your specific circumstances. In this fourth episode of Family Law Matters, we are speaking with Martina O'Mahony from Global Compass Consulting. Martina is a certified divorce analyst. She assists her clients and their lawyers to understand the financial decisions made in separation and divorce. Martina brings 15 years in the financial services industry as a broker and financial planner to her work. See a complete bio for Martina on my website at resolvology.com. Hi, Martina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Janine. I'm excited to be here. Martina, tell us a bit about what got you into the financial industry. Well, uh, from a young age, I was always intrigued by wealth, I guess, coming from being a, a missionary child and pastor child. And so wealth intrigued me and I went into um, financial planning, got my CFP, which was a uh, at 20 years ago, that was, and it still is, a very global designation for financial planning. And I did work for some financial institutions and private banking, the brokerage world. And then most recently, now I'm using all that experience to do divorce planning. And how did you become interested in divorce planning? So that one is as a financial person, uh, what uh, kind of overwhelmed me was when I was going through my own 20-year uh, divorce and I was back in the brokerage world, it was uh, really getting to me that I, I was uncharted waters and I didn't really understand the lingo or how just how lawyers were working, how um, who to get advice from, and just to feel that I couldn't even put the financial pieces together because of all the, I guess, the psychological, the emotional fog that you're in and uh, trying to do all the juggling with the kids and the legal terms and not knowing how you're going to kind of come out of this. So it, uh, it got me into investigating uh, the certified financial divorce designation and also the Chartered Financial Divorce Specialist in Canada. And it was, was perfect timing. And I swore that when I finished some of that uh, studies and the designations that I would use it to help others who are going through similar similar fog and, and just not knowing how they're going to be okay. So it's so interesting for you to say that because, you know, oftentimes I'll hear clients say to me, well, I don't think I can afford to leave my marriage or I've stayed a lot longer than I otherwise might have because I just don't think I can afford to leave. And to think that somebody who has such a strong financial expertise uh, as they've walked through that 
recognize just how different this is, is really, I think, heartening for other people who might be worried about that. Tell us about what is the first step that someone is contemplating separation and divorce? What do you think the first step is for them? Well, I think it would be similar for what I had. And and that's just Maslow's basic uh, hierarchy is where are you going to live? Uh, how are you going to make your, your bill payments, your food costs? Where are the kids going to be? Uh, all of those uh, initial processes, which are actually, they're not small things. And that's why in finance, um, when people are going through a divorce, we are having them make right from the, the gates. We're asking them to make some some huge financial decisions that have potentially sometimes huge significant impact on your finance, depending on what you do. So like you said, sometimes we have, um, I've seen clients too, where they're, they're, they're not sure because they don't, we call them the non-CFO spouse and it could be either party. I've seen both and they, they haven't been doing the finances. They don't even know what bank accounts um, and credit card bills are, are balances for that. So they're very, very vulnerable to not knowing. However, if they start to step out and see, okay, I, I challenge people to say, if you're thinking of leaving, you don't always have to go and buy another house or take the matrimonial house. Look at rental properties. I took a girlfriend once when I was trying to decide what to do. And we went and looked at um, uh, rental properties. And that was really uh, huge for me because I had to really visualize myself. I'm a visual person. I had to visualize, okay, where would we put the kids' furniture? Where would the kids go to school? You know, how to kind of facilitate all that and then the cost of it. So it sounds like the concrete tasks of moving forward, um, even exposing yourself a little bit to that and kind of just going out and doing some research before you make any big decisions is a really helpful strategy. Yes. Um, A lot of times I find that uh, just you know, going to the bank and seeing if you don't know too much about your bank accounts, if you have, you know, a couple bank accounts that you're joint with, you could maybe then open up your own uh, account, bank account, get your own credit card. If you do not have one in your soul name, that would be the first, that would be my first. And then you, and then go to the house and, and rental market. But um, a credit card is so huge if to have it in your own name. And the thing to remember too is that sometimes when I find when trust is lost in a relationship, there's so many uncertainties and unknowns. And so it's a, I guess it's a potentially sometimes helpful to know this, but if you or your spouse go and get bank accounts, credit cards, uh, investments that are within the, the, like you haven't separated yet they will all be called later on into disclosure. So you're not hiding anything. Don't think that you're hiding anything or don't try to hide anything in that way because potentially debt and investments could be still considered marital assets. But it's, I would encourage a separate bank account and a separate credit card just so you have an identity to start to grow if you ever did separate. And so lots of, you're right, lots of people will say, well, you know, I've raised the kids, my husband has taken care of the finances, we've had like a strong division of labor in that way in our marriage. And so that, that, that's scary for lots of people, because then they think, well, I don't know the first thing about it. And so when you're talking about, you know, just going into a bank or 
calling the bank and saying, you know, what do I need to do to open up a credit card? Then they're going to walk you through that to some degree. They're going to get you to, you know, give them all the information that, that, that you might need. And now how about for folks who have a more um, sort of egalitarian financial relationship? They might have things like, um, you know, they both mutually made decisions about finances, or maybe there's an agreement in place, like a, a co- cohabitation agreement in place. Uh, how is that situation different than those who maybe are kind of just out of the know? Well, I would suggest that those individuals, they, uh, potentially they have an upper hand because they know potentially what the balances are of investments. They know that they can each qualify for credit. They know what they could qualify potentially for a house or a mortgage. Um, that would be, I guess, ideal. What they sometimes don't know is, well, if they had a cohabitation agreement, then that's kind of easy for, for banks to go back and for advisors to go back and say, okay, you got married here, you're separating here. But I also wonder when it's couples like that, that they sometimes might live separately and not want to deal with some of the finances because it's either here nor there. However, it could be really impactful as they continue if they avoid that conversation. And then the, with child support and there probably wouldn't be spousal support. It might actually help them come to the table though to, to make better decisions because there's not uh, an uneven balance of power and roles there. Mm-hmm. So specifically, a couple with a cohabitation agreement, that couple has entered into an agreement prior to either living together for a period of time, or even once they're married, they can have a cohabitation agreement. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And and what does that cohabitation agreement offer them? I kind of uh, associate with being your business partners in some aspect, right? And you're just setting out the terms and conditions of your business arrangement. And so say one person does have a business and they both get married and they value the business. They say, you know, the business is, we've got this many employees and we would say the business fair market value is a million dollars. That's saying, that's adding a value to that. If they're saying, okay, Joe brought the house uh, into the marriage and it was valued at $500,000 and Sally kept a rental and it was valued at you know 300,000 then we've got lots of moving parts all we need to know is the end date at when they want to separate and then how to divide it so if it was for the business i've had different clients say if we uh, are married for 10 years i will give you 20% of the business so instead of you know if they didn't have a cohabitation agreement it might be that the business if it went from a million dollars to 10 million dollars that difference, the nine million, might be split in half. So that you know, at least that gives some parameters and some more digestible ways to part. Mm-hmm. And obviously, all of these cohabitation agreements are put together by lawyers, generally speaking, or they're even if they're put together by financial experts, people will go to a lawyer to make sure it's in their best interests um, in order before they sign them. But you know, we've just talked about sort of the the person who doesn't know anything about their finances or they don't have any specific knowledge about their finances versus the pre- people who have been really thoughtful and 
forward thinking about their finances. And so, you know, most of the folks that come about a separation don't ever anticipate that they're going to be separated at some point. I mean, I think most people enter into marriage or into long-term committed relationships feeling like this is going to be for a really long time. So name some of the other financial decisions that they need to make as they separate. Uh, The pension, and that's a huge one. Because there's a few, there's um, the way that we're going with our with our economy, we're not usually doing those, but defined benefit uh, pension plans are from or lucrative pension that we used to have a lot of. And what that does is it'll it'll do a calculation and it'll say, you know, Joe gets fifty thousand dollars for the rest of his life when he reaches sixty five. Um, that's, that's a lucrative benefit plan, especially with our CPP being so low and to divide that sometimes, uh, is, is tricky. And it's one of those things that you cannot go back you, you have one shot and you have to make a decision if you sometimes want to take half of that. So you'd have 25,000 for the rest of your life or what we call a commuted value, which could be say $400,000 right now. Today, you take that lump sum. They'll have restrictions on it, but uh, at least you can have that as part of the marital settlement. So that those are two really huge. And if one spouse is not a financial savvy person, that's really overwhelming to, to talk about and to actually have to make that decision. And there's tax consequences that you have to think about for registered assets, pension versus, you know, sometimes I find that one spouse that just is like maybe doesn't want to know too much about the finances or just is is overwhelmed and they just say okay just give me my house and you can have everything else that could be the worst possible the other person could be walking away with a fortune and the house with if it's you know maybe not all paid off or if there's renovations that you would need right away property tax goes up and find out that 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 person can't even afford to keep the monthly costs going. Also investments. Uh, if one person has never really, you know, talked about stocks or bonds or uh, GICs, that can be an overwhelming process too. And maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's $300,000. Either way, it, it could be tricky if they haven't been the one that's been talking about investing and, uh, and helping with that. So, the other financial decisions include pensions, they include investments. Tell us a bit about child support. How is child support calculated? So child support is, you. So it, and it comes at a point where, so sometimes when I do joint mediation, so if I come up as a financial expert into a mediation, um, they're already having, usually they've already talked about uh, where the, the parenting plan, where the kids are going to live. Um, how much they're, if they're having shared parenting, is it is it equal or is it 60 percent at one house and 40 percent at the other? Those are important before we talk about the child support because it includes that. Uh, however, if you start talking about the financial of child support prior to thinking about the child and what may be the best interest in that child, people can kind of get thwarted to say, okay, if I don't take 50-50, then that means I'm going to have to pay you more in child support or in all the other costs. So so that can be a heated debate 
but we have to keep bringing it back to the, the kids. What I do like about the current government legislation right now is it's really an offset. So if there is just shared parenting and it's basically 50-50 just, or 60%, uh, percent, you can just say, okay, I make 100000 so-and-so makes 150, or, yeah, 150000 and you each kind of, they, they, there's an exact amount that can stipulate what that child should have for, for their needs. And so if the one for 100000 has to pay, say, $1,000 a month and the one for 150 has to pay 1400 then they just offset it. And so the one parent would, would just have to pay the difference. So that'd be $400 to the other spouse. But the, the mix is, is, is also impactful in the other costs. So that the things that we sometimes forget about and where people can be divisive with their parenting post-divorce is say you had Johnny in violin lessons and skiing and hockey and, 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 and expensive camps. Um, is that realistic to, to still continue for the child or, it, or do you have to drop some of those activities and of those activities, is it a 50, 50 split or is it prorated to what the parents are paying in child support? So if one parent is paying 70% and the other parent is paying 30%, then typically you would keep that ratio for their, their extra costs. And amicably, when, when parents are doing a separation agreement, there, there can be lots of wiggle room for that. And potentially tax-wise, you know, maybe they get creative in some areas with that. The, the tax advantage is more in the spousal support, though, because there's no ch child support income is not taxable. And the person paying child support income doesn't get a tax benefit. So, you know, in an ideal world, what we would see is that parents would look at what is in the best interests of the child. They would determine, okay, so where should this child be living and how should we be sharing our parenting time and kind of come up with that scenario first, because, of course, we want to make sure that um, the children's needs are met prior to the parental financial needs. So that's, I think, the first consideration. And then if there's anything where there's um, either... 50-50 split or anything less than 60%, then one, then parents are considered to be sort of joint parents financially. And then that's where the offset can take place. But if one parent has sort of primary care, they've got over that threshold, then the other parent would pay them a different amount that would likely not include an offset. And it's also complex, right? Because as you're saying, there's different tax implications. As you've aptly stated, right, you're kind of thrown into this, sometimes not knowing very much about the circumstances and whatever you decide can have long lasting impacts for you and the children. Uh -huh. Martina, like I've been mediating for 25 years, I think it is. And that scenario about one parent wanting to just keep the family home. That is just so common, that stability and that sense of predictability. And I'm just going to keep the family home. You can take whatever else. And that doesn't really necessarily work out for folks in the long term. I mean, it can. It can be a really good decision depending on what the priority is of the parent. But it also can sort of this foster of, well, I can be okay if I just keep the family home. I've got an asset. But as you stated, you know, getting bought out from a pension that exists or portion of the family business 
those things or some of the investments, those might actually hold somebody in better financial standing than if they had done nothing uh-huh. beyond the house. So um, how do you address people when they come to you and they have fairly rigid ideas about what should happen either as it relates to child support or as it relates to dividing the assets and debts? Right. So when I see clients, we, we have this, like it's a, uh, well, even when you when you talk of financial disclosure, it's really like basically your bank accounts, cre- your debt, credit, um, investments, pension, uh, real estate. It's actually on paper. It's really quite simple, and it could be about two, three pages at the most if you simplify it. What what fogs everything is exactly what you're saying when someone is holding to their position, and I I often tell clients like. Like any one of these, you could apply, you could qualify for a mortgage if the separation agreement says, you know, you're going to get this asset, this asset, or this monthly income. And if you hold to that position and you don't want to look at anything else, then then you might be awarded the house. It might be a bit of a financial burden later on. Or what if you try to just envision, you know, something different? So because the kids we always say, you know, oh, we want the family home, but the kids actually, they just want their parents to be okay. They want, they don't want their parents to be stressed to go to work on a single income just to keep the house. They, they want their parents to be okay. So if you think in terms of, again, the kids, but get counseling on that and get counseling on your position. If there's ever a time where someone wants to um, make the other person pay, that can make this whole, you know, the the division of assets tricky because they're holding firm to I want half of this money from the pension when really actually it could be, you know, creative a different way and and that person, you know, I give and take. So it's it's deciding, I guess what's really important is when people are coming to negotiations and mediation or before they're talking to the lawyers, have a list, whether this is amicable or not have a list of what you want and maybe a subcategory of why you want it. And so that you can, you can go through kind of a logistics with, okay, what, what's a legal ruling on what your position would be? What's the financial position on what that would be? And what is the emotional position? Because sometimes you're holding on to it because of an emotional position when it doesn't work financially and it doesn't work legally. So that's maybe where you need to get uh, the help on the other side. Right. So in, uh, it, during this podcast series, there's been a number of you know guests who have said, look, if you are going through separation and divorce, it's very helpful to go and talk to a therapist, a psychologist, even for a session or two, because that person can help you manage some of the emotional issues that are factoring into some of these big decisions. And when we're problem solving, we want to be looking at the facts and we want to be thinking about the outcomes based on the decision. And when that's clouded by emotion, we may not make our best decision. So I think that's what I hear you saying is that if people come to the table and they can state what they want, why they want it, what are the emotional reasons, what are the financial reasons, what do you think the benefits are to the children, if this decision is made, what are the shortcomings of this decision, then those who are trying to help you will kind of be thinking in the back of their minds about, okay, so they could accomplish this objective in a different way 
which actually benefits both parties better. And so that both parties get more of the puzzle or the piece of the pie rather than they might have had they stuck to their initial sort of thought about how things should be divided. Right. Right. So spousal support, tell us a bit about how spousal support works. Well, spousal support, and um, it's fascinating to see the work that I'm doing in the U.S. It gives us Canadians maybe a little bit more appreciation for what we do have. And this is where I would, you know, when you're you're in the, the situation and you're, you're, you're looking for ideas, I've seen both sides. I've seen, like you said, someone's in a long-term marriage and they're unsure of what they would get and they're scared. And so they don't even, they think it's going to be nothing and they think they're going to be on the street and they have, you know, that's, that's a fear. And then I've seen the other side where some spouse that maybe was staying home seems very entitled and I'm going to take half of their salary for the rest of my life. And so to know that it's not neither, it's neither of those spectrums and it's something very much in between. And in the U.S., it's it's called um, recovery maintenance, or um, because what it is is it's it's just to try to get you up to your skill set, uh, maybe education, maybe it's uh, two years in school, and it's to get you to be a income generating, self sufficient uh, party rather than being on spousal support for the rest of your life. That is under a certain age. If you're over 60, there's limited options, right? And our workforce experience might be limited and you might not be able to regain that ground. But if you're, you know, a 30-year-old or 35-year-old, you can, there's ways that you can gain education. You can get a a good paying job uh, when the kids are gone. Um, So there's different, uh, different options for you. So it's, it's usually based on your length of the marriage, the income differential, the ability now for that person to pay if the income differential was say someone staying at home and someone working and so you have to kind of coordinate that and and the skill sets to get that party up to speed so it could and then the payments are if they're paid on a periodic basis so it's a monthly thousand dollars a month uh, then that can be taken off the higher income earner um, that can the main income earner, they can have that as a deduction, and then that spouse will have to claim that as um, as income. Now that's great news if you're if that spouse didn't have really an income before. You really want to make it stated like that because then they can potentially qualify for uh, a loan or a mortgage because they can use a portion of that income, not all of the income, but it, there's a portion of that that they could use. If nobody cares about the tax issue and they just want to do a lump sum, there's no real tax benefit to that. So that's just more of a paying someone, you know, maybe that's where the case is, there's equity in the house. And instead of spousal support, I'm going to give you that. There's that. Um, so then what we would have to do is you'd still do your due diligence and your math and you would say, okay, does that really equal what I would be getting? for maybe 20 years. There's math um, calculations to do that, to make sure that that's in your best interest. And getting back to like, like we were saying that the people who are afraid to leave, and and it seems so scary to be on your own and to be accountable and independent, 
However, I've seen the most incredible stories. And even, well, even for myself, I had to pick up my career quickly at age 40 and kind of make up for 10 years that I was at home with the kids. Some of these ladies, they're over 55 and they are like one, one lady went back to school to be a lawyer and she was in her 40s. So, but even at 55, I've seen that one was, uh, she got to do a horticulture thing that she loved and she would just light up being a, being out of the, um, the circumstances that she was in. I think that added 10 years to her and to be able to explore and look at interests and hobbies and jobs. And it wasn't so scary for her. So people are really resilient and it's not all bad news. Uh, it, it, and you can really work it. In terms of spousal support, then what we're really looking at is needs, means and circumstances of the parties. And if somebody has been staying at home for a period of time and they are unemployable, sometimes that spousal support helps bridge the gap so that they can get back into the workforce. In some circumstances, that's not an option, depending on the length of the marriage, perhaps. Um, But this is all information that a lawyer would be able to very clearly lay out for folks. But when it comes to the financial piece, again, I hear you talking about being creative and saying, well, what is going to be in the best interests of both of the parties? And sometimes what's good for one is actually a benefit to the other. So somebody who's got a strong background in finance and finance coaching like you do can sit down with people and really sort of say look here's some of the choices that you have what makes most sense for both of you yes exactly like I um you know even for for someone like myself for a CDFA uh we charge by the hour I've had clients say in an hour they've learned more than they have with their lawyer for (laughs) six months right Uh, because we can just shoot from the hip or just talking and discussing a few strategies that they can then take to their professionals. So a few hours could save you thousands and um, something to, to look at, or yeah, three, uh, even paying the accountant. <laughs> I hate sometimes paying my accountant, but every time I come away with, I know that if I wouldn't have taken that advice, it would have cost me a whole lot more. So it's, it's sometimes hard to stomach But that's where I really feel the collaboration between the lawyers or mediators to take out the certain pieces, because you don't want to have some of these lengthy financial conversations with a lawyer that's charging $600 an hour. That lawyer should probably best be used for the discussion that has to come at the end or the the document preparation that comes at the end. And so if you can use a mediator or a financial to solve some of the other questions that can be dealt with on an hourly basis or a few hours, that might help save you some money too. The last question today is if you would offer some advice for somebody who's beginning the separation process, what would you say to them? I would, yeah, just to kind of reiterate what we've talked about, I would challenge them to to seek professional advice on every question. So whether it's real estate, like there, there's even sometimes a special real estate professionals, mortgage professionals that will help people going through a divorce because you don't necessarily want a realtor who just wants to get your business and up some of the prices. You want someone to say, okay, if I just do a fire sale in my house today, what would that number be? 
you want someone in your court that's going to recognize that you have a, a bit of a struggle right now and that they'll be sensitive to that. Because we, we are we're like, we are asking clients who are struggling in this fog of separation and divorce, and we're asking them to make huge financial decisions. So have a team work with, yeah, and especially if the team can kind of reiterate what each other is saying. So when I work with um, a financial advisor, an investment advisor, and they say, oh yeah, we can use these funds for this because of the tax. And if that's confirmed with an accountant uh, and then the lawyer can write it up and it all looks good, that's beautiful. That's knowing that you've done the best that you can do with your circumstances because divorce is not fair and it's it's usually going to cost you something at some point. So how to minimize that and how to minimize the noise of you taking a position or you, I mean, and I know it's hard to rationalize. I can look back on myself and think, yeah, I should have been more rational at that point. And so, and so using a, a therapist along the way, I would, I mean, that was huge to me. And I think that's so much that has to be part of the team as well. Thank you for sharing that with us, because we know that for a lot of people coming through separation and divorce, they don't necessarily end up having a more lucrative lifestyle. In fact, oftentimes both parties end up with living with less. So uh, the advice that you've given us and the information you've shared, is all very valuable. So thank you. Thank you very much, Janine. We establish our financial identity often very early in life, and when we become a couple, we seek to build financial security. Separating our financial life is one of the most challenging issues to resolve during divorce. For many people, money equates either to freedom or personal power, and we know each family has less of it upon a separation or divorce. During the interview, Martina walked us through a number of financial issues, including pensions, child and spousal support, cohabitation agreements, and the division of family assets. She recommends people coordinate law, tax, and accounting experts. She also shared her personal circumstances and her understanding about how the emotional impact of separation can cloud our understanding of financial matters. As a quick note, please do not construe the information shared by Martina as personal financial advice. Please find a professional who can provide you with tailored advice for your specific circumstances. That's it for this edition of Family Law Matters. I'm Janine Crofton. Thanks for listening. Connect with us by emailing familylawmatters at info at resolveology.com. Ask us your questions about family law issues and look for our blog articles to address your pressing questions. Check out the other work we do at resolveology.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-E-S-O-L-V-O-L-O-G-Y underscore Y-Y-C. Thanks to Meg Wilcox for her work on the podcast series. Thanks as well to Martina O'Mahony for her thoughts on resolving your family law issues. Be sure to subscribe to the rest of the series where you gain insights from other professionals who assist families going through separation and divorce in Alberta. <music>